Welcome to the Lost Roman Heroes podcast. My name is Matthew. My name is Matteo. And together we are diving deep into the history of Rome from its founding to its death, uncovering Rome's greatest heroes along the way and ranking them. Welcome to episode number 16, Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix, part two. I just want to say, Matteo, just as we get rolling, that I got a little feedback from none other than my big sister, your aunt, about our last episode. Oh, yeah. She said she fell asleep listening to it, and then it was too long. That's always nice to hear. <laughs> yeah. At first, it didn't make me feel great, but then I tried to take it constructively, and I just wanted to say... Man up a little. Yeah, man up. I just want to say, we're sorry. This thing is a balancing act between, Mateo, between trying to get things historically accurate and get in as much good detail as you can, and yet... Also make it entertaining. And keep it entertaining. Just enough, you know? It's not easy. And so, we're going to keep working on that. Thank you for the feedback, and we would love feedback from all of you. Please email us at info at lostromanheroes.com and tell us what you think, what would you like to see more of, what you would like to hear less of, and we are going to try to accommodate. At any rate, let's get rolling here. Mateo, do you remember where we ended last episode, Sula Part 1? Uh, Sula was stripped of his command. That was like supposed to be the turning point of his life, right? Stripped of his command, and then he came into Rome... Marius. Oh, yeah, Marius had him in his household, right? Marius had him in his house, and Sulla escaped the city and was standing on the Adriatic, Mateo, with the army, faced with a decision. Does he hop on the boats and sail east to fight Mithridates, or... Sail west and uh, confront uh, Marius and his supporters. Yeah, or march west. So... When he looked east, he saw the command he'd been waiting for his entire life. And, right. and yet I feel like he sort of, he had no choice. He had no choice to some extent because the whole Roman Republican system this collapsing. was collapsing around him. And he was an old-fashioned conservative guy that was dedicated to the Senate and to upholding the Republic. And I know he gets a ton of flack for what comes next. And yet, somehow, I feel like... I, I, I get it. He was looking at a populist demagogue. Marius had taken control of the city. The Senate was completely sidelined. No? Yeah. His supporters were being killed. His supporters were being killed. Friends and family were being persecuted in Rome. It looked a lot like, to him, I imagine, the end of the world. Yeah, seemed that way. I mean, uh, as far as he could have known, the whole country was going to collapse. So, so, not only just the Republic. I mean, there was people rising up, um, different corners of the Imperium. You know, and we're going to touch on that later when we cover Sertorius. But, oh yeah, that's a good point. We are going to see this from another perspective next episode. But, 
Things were collapsing around him, and he decided not to jump on a ship, but he took his five legions, Matteo, and he marched down the Via Appia to Rome. The Appian Way. The Appian Way, which we stood on. We did? Yeah, we did. When? We did, when we went oh, and visited we the, 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 the tomb of the Scipios. Scipios. Yeah. yeah. So he's marching to Rome, Matteo, and he arrives at something called, you're going to love this, I've been dying to share this with you all week, the Pomerium. The Pomerium? Uh, have you ever heard of that before? I've not. Okay. The Pomerium is a furrow in the ground tracing the outline of the city of Rome, and it was created by our old friend, Episode 2 star, Romulus. Really? Yeah. And it was still there? Still there. The fence, basically. It, over. It, it was no it, it, that's right remember we talked about yeah. the fence that that Remus probably hopped over yeah well well it turns out that I don't know if it was a fence or a wall in that day legend says that it was but now 650 years later there was a furrow around the city marked by stones which was supposedly created by Romulus and that demarcated the city of Rome Everything inside that line was Rome and Roman. Everything outside that line, Matteo, was not Roman. It was foreign. It was not Roman. Right. And if you go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, you'll see a map that has a red line in it, which is basically where the Pomerium was. Now, the Pomerium's a cool word. I had never heard of it before. Me neither. It's a contraction of two ancient Latin words, post and morium, which means beyond the wall. Um, and it was marked by stone markers, Mateo, called chippi. 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 Have you ever heard of chippi hammer in Spanish? Nope. Ah, a chippi hammer has nothing to do with this, actually. Okay. It means jackhammer, because nice. it goes chippi, 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 chippi. Mmm, Okay. <laughs> Mom's going to love that one. <laughs> exactly. So, anyways, the chippy were stone markers. And if you go to our website, again, www.lostromanheroes.com, on the images and maps page, you're going to see an image of the last chippy to be found, which was just found two years ago, Mateo. Well, underground? Yeah, it was underground right next to the mausoleum of Augustus. Remember when oh, we uh, went yeah. to the Arapaches yeah, and we saw yeah. the mausoleum of Augustus? Yeah. They're working on it. And in this excavation work they found one of these stones that's pretty awesome placed there by the emperor claudius it is super awesome would have thought yeah so the cool thing about the pomerium mateo was that there were laws associated with this line this boundary which was no weapons inside the pomerium period so you know all these hollywood movies you see movies of the praetorian guards with their like their knives and their swords and yep. they're all like they couldn't carry weapons inside, inside the, the city of Rome. Yeah, they so could basically not. inside the city of Rome. Inside the city of Rome. So the movie Gladiator was is kind of. Oh yeah. What about gladiators though? They had their weapons. Gladiators had their weapons. Yeah. So once soldiers entered the pomerium, they needed to leave their weapons behind, and they became, by law, Matteo, civilians. No bodies could be buried with inside the pomerium, until. Really? Until Augustus? No, until the Emperor Trajan. Trajan was the first man body, buried in Rome. first man buried in Rome. His ashes were buried at the foot of Trajan's column. Oh wow! When generals returned to the city, they had to renounce their command or their imperium when they got to the Pomerium, and there was only one exception, 
which is when generals were returning to receive their triumph, they could remain generals, keep their command when they entered the city. Right. So this was a very old, ancient law, never broken, except, of course, by Marius a short time before, right? And so when Sulla arrived at the Pomerium with his five legions, all of his officers resigned. They refused to follow him, Matteo, except for one, his caster, a guy by the name of Lucius uh, Licinius. So all the centurions as well? All the centurions, all of his officers, except for one. So it was Sulla, his caster, and then the army. And even some right. of them resigned as well. They didn't want to break the law. This is the second time in history, Matteo, in which an army had crossed this line, the Pomerium. Right. In went Sulla with his army. Marius, we saw last episode, put together a force of gladiators and goons. Right. Yeah, you street could, thugs. Street thugs. Street thugs versus a disciplined, seasoned, hardened Roman army. And reformed Roman army. And reformed. Right. It was over quickly. So... Very quickly, Sulla restored order. He passed reforms, re-empowering the Senate. He named two new consuls, Matteo, Cornelius Cinna. We're going to see more of him. And a guy by the name of Gnaeus Octavius. Cinna was more partial to Marius, and Sulla knew that. But Sulla wanted balance. Let's have both parties what a good represented. Guy. You know, that's, that's the difference between him and Marius. And I guess everyone else at the time, he was still a firm believer in law, even though it didn't favor him necessarily. I agree with you entirely. And, and what you just vocalized is something that I've been struck this entire week doing research on this, is that Sulla was still trying to find balance within the system. Right. And as soon as he did this, Mateo, he sailed for Asia to take on Mithridates. For his life, and he fled for Africa. And Cinna also, uh, not Cinna, sorry, uh, his buddy Sulpicius also fled but was captured and, and killed by his own servant. Oh, so wow. right now, as, as Sulla sails east, Marius is in Africa. As soon as Sulla leaves, old man Marius returns. He joins forces with Cinna. Cinna and Marius march into Rome with troops. So this is the third time the Pomerium has been violated. Two of those three in times were by year. Marius. And Marius, this time, was not messing around. Marius and Cinna murdered anyone remotely connected to Suna, Sulla. You and his family? They killed six former consuls. Oh, my. They seized his property, demolished his home, overturned his laws. And to your question, distant family, yes, but Sulla's wife and children ran for their lives. They escaped. And they went to Greece, and they found shelter, obviously, with Sulla in Greece. Okay. Marius was completely unhinged at this point. And Cinna, you get the sense that Cinna was not unhinged. It was a cold calculation. Right. He was like his, his, um, his Saruman. I like that. He was Saruman. Yeah. That is so cool. That's exactly who he was. Yeah. Because he was shrewd. He was rational. He understood the law. He played his cards right. He was playing his cards right in a bid for power. Marius was just out of his mind. Right. Nutso at mm -hmm. this point. So let's leave Rome now, Matteo, and let's move east. And I'm not going to do the weird sound that I said I would never do yeah, again. But I'm, no, I left it behind. I'm not doing it anymore. So now we are in, Matteo, 
Greece. And he lands Mateo at Epirus, a place that we've talked about a couple of times already right. on the podcast. And he was ready to mess someone up. Uh, you know what I really admire is his focus. He knows what's happening right now in Rome. He knows that Marius is back up to his old hijinks. But he knows that he can't rush it. Yeah. He has to also be calculated, methodical. Yes. And plan everything because one wrong move and that could be the end of him. And more importantly, the Republic. The Republic. Yeah, I agree with you. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but my sense of the man is that he is focused on, he's prioritizing what's right, most important if, for Rome now. And if he really wasn't thinking that, then he wouldn't have put Cinna. He wouldn't have uh, allowed Cinna to Completely. vote as consul. He would have put one of his own students. Because that's just, it puts him in yeah. danger. So after he arrives at Epirus, he marches Matteo on Athens, which was, as we saw in last episode, that's where the Pontic forces were concentrated inside the city of Athens. And when I say Pontic, we're talking, listeners, about King Mithridates VI of Pontus had sent his general, Archelaus, to Greece to occupy Greece, basically to stick a thumb in Rome's eye. So he laid siege to Athens. We know that ancient armies didn't fight over winter because it was impossible to, right. to get supplies. Mm-hmm. But he maintained the siege throughout the winter of 87, 86 BC. These were tough conditions, but Sulla's army was no joke. These, these were hardcore guys, veterans of the social wars that we talked about in last episode. Right. And so they weren't going to let some little thing like winter mess them up. Mess them up at all. And on March 1st of the year 86 BC, Mateo, they stormed the walls and finally broke in. They ravaged the city of Athens. But they did not destroy the city of Athens because Sulla wanted to honor the city's ancient past. Okay. Wait, this, why did they march on Athens? Because that's where the Pontic general Archelaus was holed ah, up behind the walls okay. of Athens. Okay. Now, Archelaus managed to escape Athens and Sulla marched north in pursuit. Okay. He headed towards Thessaly in Greece. Mm, Macedonia. Sulla's men, Matteo, you know how big his army was at this point? Uh, how much? 17,000 men. Vets. Hardcore. Okay. Seasoned. Elite. Elite. Okay. And he camped in the hills, Matteo, outside a town called Chironia. Now, the Pontic forces were led by two different generals from Pontus. One was Archelaus, and the other was Taxiles. That army consisted of 85,000 men. Oh, wow. So, numerically, that's like almost four times as much. Yeah, it's more than four times as much. And in oh, addition... Oh, yeah, what am I talking about? That is yeah, I didn't, want to, I didn't was, want to point it out. You had a little math issue. Almost like that. That was terrible. Yeah, that was... That was, yeah, that was <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> it's okay. It happens. It happens to the best of us. No. So, in addition to 85,000 men, this is the coolest thing ever. They had 90 scythed chariots. How do scythed? You know what? In my entire life, I never felt like I was pronouncing this properly. Scythe. I just thought I would throw it out there on a podcast without having practiced it or looking it up. Why would it not be scythe, though? But it's. I think it's a hard C. Scythe? I don't think so. Everyone I've ever heard says scythe. This is terribly embarrassing right now, what's going on in the podcast. 
Yeah, my dad's an author, by the way, so that's even more embarrassing. Oh, lordy. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that out there. Oh, so, yeah, of course. It's a great, now, great um, huh? advertisement for your book. Okay, first of all, <laughs> eh, look, it says pronounce it. Sith. Huh? Sive. Oh, lord. <laughs> I can't believe I just botched that. It's terrible. Cut that out. Oh, I mean, no. You're an author, you know? <laughs> Maybe we'll cut that out. Oh, boy. Anyways, what I meant to say was 90 scythed chariots. Meaning, if you've seen the movie The Gladiator, Mateo, we saw this recently. Or I saw it recently. I just rewatched it. I didn't tell you about yeah. it. There it, it, are the, 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 the long blades mm -hmm. sticking out from the center the of the wheels. Them, yeah, the Sarmatians had them as well. And so when these things rolled into battle and you were standing anywhere next to them, you were going to have your legs cut Darth, into. You would be Darth Mauled. You would be Darth Mauled. Well yeah, put. Jeez. So these are scary things. These were like the Abrams tanks of the ancient world. Don't mess with the scythe chariots. Right. So 85,000 men, 90 chariots were sitting in the valley, and the Romans were on the hill above. Sulla started digging trenches on his flanks, Mateo, and palisades in front to try to protect his small force. Right. He was in command of the right flank of the army. He, his legate, Lucius Licinius Morena, was on the left. Mm -hmm. He had two sub-commanders commanding the reserve in the rear, uh, guys by the name of Hortensius and Galba. Sula's opening move, Mateo, was instead of advancing towards Archelaus, he sounded the retreat. He made a fake retreat along the river Cephasus. Archelaus was lured in by the move, and he sent his scythe chariots into battle against the Roman center. But the Roman commander in the center retreated behind these defensive stakes, so the chariots couldn't advance. Right, so they were basically rendered useless. Yeah, he sort of neutralized the chariots, and then the Pontic forces started moving in with their infantry behind long pikes in phalanx format. Hmm. So, so it's a long march, basically. It's yeah, a slow and steady. Slow and steady march. Easy for the pickings. Romans sitting behind the palisades. And this part was too cool, Mateo. What are the, these... Oh, and by the way, the Romans start firing ballista bolts. So you have artillery flying over the heads of the Romans. In come those long pikes. And what do these hardcore legionnaires do when the pikes come close to them? What? They use their hands to push the pike aside so that they can move in behind their short swords because they want to get inside that the line of uh, right. pointy things because when the Roman soldiers got close in they were formidable right I mean pike warfare is like a better against cavalry so yeah kind of a stupid idea anyways I guess that was their like their core weapon I mean I pretty I think that's just a very Greek uh, Anatolian thing I think you're right actually like a very um, Mithridatic um, and there's this other word I'm thinking of, um, not Aegean, uh, Hellas, Hel um, Hellenic, Hellenic. Yeah. I think it's a very Hellenic thing. I suspect you're right. I do think it is very much a Hellenic warfare and the Romans Hocrates. are now operating with a very modern army because it had just right. essentially been redesigned by Marius system. 20 years before. Right. Archelaus saw the Roman center was super strong, and so he started focusing on the left wing in the hills, which we thought was the weak spot. Sulla was all the way over on the other side of the field. He saw the danger, and he personally led cavalry to the rescue 
riding across the field, pushing back the Pontic forces. Then Archelaus moved to the other wing, and Sulla, again, at the head of the troops, raced back to push back Archelaus, and all of a sudden, the Pontic line starts faltering. Seeing he's getting the advantage, or the possibility of advantage, Sulla orders a general advance. Okay. And when the Roman troops advance, they advance... Hard? Hard. Oh, and, yeah. And with precision. Of course. The Pontic troops broke, Matteo. They couldn't handle it after, after a long afternoon of fighting when and Romans marching, finally... Probably heavy gear carrying that big-ass... The um, big, oh, yeah. yeah. That big oops, oops. around. Yeah. So it turned into a rout very quickly. 85,000 Pontic troops rode into battle. 10,000 Pontic troops oh, survived. My God, that's a massive... Victory. It's up there with Cannae. But yeah. this time for the it's other side. It's not up there with Marius's victories, but he's yeah. finally like, putting himself in that conversation. Yeah. So, tax, in addition, the, the uh, Pontic general Taxilis was captured. Archelaus escaped. Sulla reported, Matteo, because he wrote his, all, his, an autobiography before he died. Okay. And he said about this battle, 14 of his men were missing after the battle, of which two showed up at the end of the day. So, so they only 12. had 12 losses? Yeah, they lost, lost 12. That's Versus 75,000. That's an incredible right. ratio. Jesus. Uh, some people say you should take that number with a little grain of salt, but I, I'm choosing to believe it. That's awesome. So nearby... On it's, a, like, it's like one death for like 10,000. <laughs> nearly. I don't know. Yeah, Something it is. Like nearly. All right, he, Sula built a memorial after the Battle of Mateo on top of a nearby mountain, Mount Thurium which was more of a hill, and it, and it was sort of lost in time. But in 1990, not too terribly long ago, the mountain was discovered, and the memorial that Sula built was discovered. What was uh, it? Uh, it, was, it was a block of marble, basically offering thanks to the gods, and it had the names of two Greek villagers on it, because in the battle, these Greek villagers helped Sula navigate the mountain passes and find, like, a back way up the mountain uh, mm. to, to reinforce his Just troops. Just like in 300. I forgot that. Yeah. That happened in 300 as well? Well, they're definitely not getting the back passes. I don't know if some random guy helped them. Wasn't uh, there like those hillmen were there? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's basically the same thing here. It was two random dudes from a neighboring town decided to help the Romans, and they were critical, according to Sula, to the victory because their names were on this memorial that has lasted now for 2,100 years. Cool, no? That's pretty awesome. And if you go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, you will see a little map of Greece and a little red triangle indicating where Mount Thurion so is. So dear thieves. Yeah. So, big defeat of the Pontic forces, though the forces of Pontus are not done with. But before Sulla can pursue this victory, he has another challenge, Matteo. The Roman Senate tried to take on Sulla. Around then, around the time of this victory, Sulla became aware that Lucius Valerius Flaccus, a consul, right. had arrived in Greece. Was Marius dead by now? Marius is dead now. Okay. Uh, excuse me. No, sorry. Marius is not dead. Sorry, forgive I thought me. He died like, uh, he, he like died in, days after he rushed into the city. He died in. Isn't that what we said last time? He died in 83. He's no, sorry. Oh, you're absolutely right, Matteo. You're right. Yeah, Marius is dead. 
Okay, but it's still a Marius government. But it's still a Marius government. Okay. Yeah, they were called the, the Marians. So these are the, the, the Popularis. So Lucius Valerius Flaccus arrives in Greece. He's a consul. And at first Sulla says, amazing. I have more forces. I only had 17,000 men. Now 17,000 minus 12 men. I finally got reinforcements. And then he realized that Flaccus was not coming to help him. He was coming to fight him. Mm. Hmm. Finally put an end to the opposition. Yeah. And the two Roman armies Matteo met at a place called Meliteia. That's a weird thing, you know, like civil wars. Imagine being one of the Roman soldiers facing off and on the other side of the field is like your cousin. Oh, my God. You've just completely captured what I was about to say. Oh. Because the two Roman armies met face to face. They're lined up. They're literally in battle formation. Roman against Roman. Is that the first time? No. Let's think about this. Is this the first time? I mean, the social wars, does that really count? If we discount the social wars, great point. This is the first Roman civil war. And this is the first potential battle of the Roman civil war. Damn. But no shots were fired, Matteo. Really? Flaccus's troops began to desert to Sulla. Why? Because he was more of like a true Roman? Why? Or they thought that his cause was just. Or maybe they just thought that he was a better commander. I don't know. I would like to think that it's what you said. They refused to raise a sword against a fellow Roman. At first it was a trickle. As the day wore on, large numbers began to desert. And finally, Flaccus broke camp and left. Wow, that's embarrassing. Before he lost his entire that's army. Completely. Because if he stayed around, it was going to be him, Flaccus, versus the, that's the Roman embarrassing. army. That's embarrassing. Yeah. And here, I think Sulla shows his quality again, Matteo, which is he did not pursue the weakened Roman army. He certainly could have and could have finished Flaccus off. Instead... He stayed focused. I have a mission. The mission is to fight the forces of Pontus, and that's what he did. He marched off in pursuit of Archelaus. And that brings us to the final battle of the, of the war, Matteo, at a place called Orcomenos. Orcomenos. We are now in 85 BC. The Romans are once again massively outnumbered, Matteo. Massively. Because... Archelaus had been reinforced. Another Pontic general called Dorileus had arrived. These, I love these names, Dorileus and Archelaus. They had 80,000 troops between the two of them. And without getting into too much detail, they met the Romans on a plain, which was perfect for Pontus because Pontic army had a big cavalry right. and they were free to operate. And they also had still these crazy chariots. Okay. With the pointy thing sticking out on the side. It's another very Eastern thing, I feel like. Yeah. What is? A lot of numbers, crap infantry, and good cavalry. Yeah, I think you're right. Most definitely. I think at this time, what the Roman infantry was, was unmatched anywhere on the face of yeah, the planet. Yeah, the closest other thing would be, like, well, from civilizations anyways, like, civil, like advanced civilizations would be, like, hoplites from the Greek city-states. Hoplites. I thought they were hoplites my whole life, but I think now they're hoplites. I don't think so. I'm I mean, going to run with hoplites. 
Okay, because in the game, Rome Total War, they say hoplites. No, really? Maybe, yeah. in, maybe in Greek it is pronounced that way. Yeah, hoplites. I like hoplites more too, to be honest. Me too. Oh, okay, yeah, we would be hoplites, so. Yeah. Yeah. Like Athenian Marines or like Spartan, like hoplites. Spartans, yeah, I think you're right. Actually, I, I like that analogy a lot. So here we have a very small Roman force. He still has his 17,000 men versus 80,000 troops, plus he's facing these crazy war chariots. So Sulla starts doing a little Roman engineering here, Matteo. Mm. Starts digging trenches, building earthworks, and placing stakes because he wanted to contain the cavalry behind the Pontic forces. Which is something else that we see by who? Like uh, six, seven hundred years later? Ah, you're talking about Belisarius? Yep. A hundred percent. Zama? Love Zara? it. Oh. Is it Zama or Zara? No, Zama, is that's, that's a high five. It, Zama is where Scipio Africanus defeated the Carthaginians. Oh, yeah, it also starts with a Z, right? It does. Oh, my lord. I'm, it's, I think it's Zara. Oh, no. It's, it's, it's slipping my mind. I'm going to come back to that. So what Sulla was trying to do was to reduce the area in which the Pontic cavalry could operate and to push them back because behind them were marshy bogs. So Archelaus knew exactly what Sulla was trying to do. He was, you get the sense, a very talented general. So he attacked early to prevent the Romans from finishing this kind of defensive uh, uh, engineering scheme. The Roman troops, Matteo, we said they were seasoned, we said they were hardcore, but they began to lose heart. They started to retreat. Really? Sulla, seeing that the battle was going against him and that everything hung in the balance. Everything hung in the balance, Matteo. Sulla jumped on top of the earthworks, Matteo, with the army starting to scatter around him and he bellowed out to his troops. Orcomenos, remember the name. I'm ready to fight and die here. When people ask you where you ran away and left your general, tell them at Orcomenos. Mm. Gave that just gave me chills. A little by the guilt way. trip, right? Yeah, that just kind of like you know reminds me of what in Lord of the Rings, um, when there's the the men of the mountains that break their oath. Ah, you're so right. You yeah. are so. He was basically putting a curse on them. Yeah. And they didn't, obviously didn't want to be cursed. They did not want to be cursed. That was all it took. Yeah, they turned around and they formed up Mateo and they stood for battle in three very tight lines. And here we see Sulla's genius on the battlefield again. Archelaus sent the crazy war chariots against the Romans. And at the very last minute, Sulla had his men open up. The three lines opened up and let the chariots, the chariots pass through like into... The with one little difference. By the way, absolutely right. But this time, right behind the three tight lines were short, sharp stakes stuck in the ground. Ah. And so many of the chariots and charioteers were impaled on those stakes. Others retreated in an absolute panic, wreaking havoc in the Pontic lines because they ran into their own men, just like Scipio did, Matteo. I love it. Perfect analogy with the, the war elephants against Hannibal. At this point, Sulla calls a general advance. The Pontic troops were tracked against the bog and they were no match for the Romans in close quarters. The Romans with those short swords were devastating and Rome triumphed. The Pontic army was wiped out. Archelaus 
Mateo surrendered and somehow was able to broker a peace deal between Sulla and King Mithridates in 85 BC. In fact, Mithridates and Sulla met personally at Dardanus. Wasn't this the fourth time they brokered a peace with Mithridates? No, this was actually the first. Uh, sorry, no, you're up. Hang on a second. Let's think about this. One, two. Th this is the third time. Oh, third time. This is the third time. And there would be more because Mithridates will not be done after this more. There will be more nastiness to come from him. Some people but never learn. This is the first Mithridatic war and this was the end. Mithridates agreed to restoring the original kings of Cappadocia and Bithynia to their thrones. Again. Again. This is like the third time. He had to pay a huge indemnity and indemnity. And Mateo, in addition to that, you're going to love this. Part of the deal was he had to loan Sula 70 ships so that Sula could go where? Rome. Back to Rome. A Roma. Andiamo a Roma. Andiamo a Italia. Andiamo a Italia. Interestingly enough, the ancient sources criticized Sula for this treaty, saying he gave Mithridates peace instead of just wiping him out. And did that and that gave him time to come back again, I guess? It did. He did come back. But part of me f feels like, is this so different than Scipio offering peace to Carthage in the Second Punic no. War? No, it's actually very similar. I also thought it was very similar. Sulu's a little Scipio-esque. He is a little Scipio-esque. And I'm admiring the guy more and more as we go along. So Sulu's now heading back to Rome, Matteo. But before he gets to Italy, he almost had one final battle to fight. And that was against the consul Cinna, Marius's old buddy and tyrant. The Senate had told Cinna, Matteo, do nothing. Okay, we want peace with Sulu at this point. Enough is enough. Yeah. Rome needs to be healed. Let Sulla come back. Cinna ignored the Senate, Matteo. He did not stand down. Instead, he raised an army to fight Sulla. He went to the Adriatic. He began to ferry his legions across the Adriatic with the intent of intercepting Sulla. But Cinna's own troops said, hell no. We're not going to fight this guy. We're going to get decimated. They mutinied and they killed Cinna. <laughs> right? So this is a recurring theme. This is the second time Which we've also seen... also what happened with Saruman. Remember? Uh, when, uh, whom, whom you needed against Saruman? The, the guy that was like Grimo or Grim... Ah, the slimy dude. Yeah, that guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure J.R.R. Tolkien was heavily influenced by themes from ancient Rome. Yeah, it, it, like some... Probably some... Rome, Viking sagas, and like Definitely. old classics and stuff. Definitely. In the same way that I think that um, uh, this other one, uh, Game of Thrones, was heavily influenced by the Eastern Roman Empire, kind of the later Roman Empire. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of court intrigue. Yeah. So this is a recurring theme. Roman troops refused to fight against Sulla. They refused to. This is the first Roman civil war. Is it because that they admired and respected Sulla because they didn't want to break law or because they were afraid of Sulla? Who knows? Who knows, but if the army support you, you win. Yeah, and the army supported Sulla. So Sulla arrives in Brundisium, which is modern Brindisi, uh, in southern Italy with five seasoned legions in 83 BC. Brindisium's in the south, right? It's in the south, yep. yeah, yeah, I knew that. You knew that. Yeah, it was in the south and the right of the boot. That is correct. Okay. Two consular armies were sent against him, Matteo. Names that you're going to like. 
Lucius Cornelius Scipio Asiaticus. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's still alive? No, it's not that guy. It's a descendant. Yeah, uh, at this point, Asiaticus had become a cognomen. Exactly. So there's the Africanus and there's the Asiaticus. That is correct. This is the Asiaticus branch of of the house. And a guy by the name of Gaius Norbanus. Sulla immediately crushes Norbanus (laughs) and his army. I mean, crushes him. And then, marching to fight Scipio... Scipio's entire army defects to Sulla. Oh, no. This is not good. <laughs> so literally, there's this amazing scene in which Sulla is sitting alone in camp. You can imagine, surrounded by 5,000 tents. It's just him and his son. And Sulla comes into camp. And he approached Scipio and said, Hey, buddy, join me. My cause is just and true. I would love for you to join me. And Scipio said, No, I shall not. I'm going to stay with the group of the, the the Marian group, the Populares. And what do you think Sulla did to Scipio? Said okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll forgive you. I'll go about your merry way. Let him go. What a good freaking guy. Do you think Marius would have done that? No way. Right? He would have killed his son or something. Drawn and quartered. Around this time, Sulla is joined by some new allies from the Senate, Matteo. Because remember, Sulla was certainly a patrician as well. A guy by the name, name of Metellus Pius... A guy by the name of, are you going to recognize it? Gnaeus Pompeius. Pomp, it's some uh, ancestor, right? No. It's Pompey? Pompey on the scene. Ah, okay. Yeah, Pompey, a little crap with Pompey. Fine, there. Wow. Are, are we doing an episode on Pompey? I mean, we have to. I don't think I have them on my list. We should do Pompeii and Crassus. Yeah, okay. Uh, come on, they're the triumphant. We have to talk about all Okay, them. well, because the other guy that shows up to help Sulla was Marcus Licinius Crassus. Okay, Crassus was the rich guy. Pompey was the military. That is correct. Both were super young, early 20s we're That's talking awesome. here. That's awesome. What? Yeah. That's so cool. They are here. They are here. Too bad they didn't turn out like him. No, they did not. So... As Matteo just said, Gnaeus Pompeius is indeed Pompey the Great, Pompeius Magnus, and Marcus Licinius Crassus would go on to become the wealthiest man in Rome and one of the wealthiest human beings in human history. Yep, and it kind of, well, just like the dwarves and uh-huh. the hobbit, just uh-huh. like um, where the king is, uh, the dragons, yeah. it would come to kind of be his downfall because mm. he got gold poured down his throat. Because greed... Evidently, is not good. It's, it's the root of all evils. Yeah. So, picture this, Matteo. We have Sulla sweeping up the Italian peninsula. More people are coming to support him. Two new consuls in Rome are elected to face Sulla, Matteo. One is named Gnaeus Papirius Carbo. Carbo, kind of cool, like Carbonara. E. And Gaius Marius Jr., this is the son of Marius. He's only 26 years old, and he's been elected consul. Which is not okay. It's not okay. And in fact, so not okay. There was another very serious dude who was part of this popularist movement, who had been a general under old man Marius. His name, Matteo, was Quintus Sertorius. A name that rings a little bit of a bell. And we're going to dedicate a whole episode to this guy because this story is unbelievable. And he was nothing like Marius. He wasn't necessarily a Marian either. He wasn't necessarily a Marian. Happenstance had him serving underneath Marius 
against the Chibrians and the the, the, the Teutonic uh, tribes. Which back then wasn't like something to complain about. That was like the role of a lifetime. Because Marius was at the peak of his power then. So this Sertorius was a truly awesome... Did you say Teutonics? Uh, the Teutons. Oh, I thought I said Teutonic. I may have. If I did, I meant the Teutons, which, which were a Germanic tribe. So this guy, Quintus Sertorius, had also raised a big army in Etruria, and he was prepared to face Sulla. But when he was passed over as consul, as he was the right age, the right background, the right training to be consul, and instead this 26-year-old little punk gets uh, elected consul. Wait, he wasn't... Um, sorry, I may cut you off. No, no, he didn't. He wasn't a pleb? Ah, he was a pleb, but remember... There were there's always one pleb consul and one patrician right, consul. I thought, uh, yeah, uh, that was something that started in the time of Camillus, which who we did an episode that makes on. Sense because Crassus and Pompey were both consuls. Uh, well, the law said, but at this point the the wheels were sort of falling off the law. Yeah, but sure. the, the law said that we had one pleb and one patrician consul. At any rate. This guy expected to be consul. Instead, this 26-year-old kid, spoiled brat, rich kid, got elected consul. And Sertoria said, forget it. I'm just going to go to Hispania. He had been appointed governor of Spain, and he left for, for Spain. So Sula, marching up the peninsula, says, you know what? It's time to start cleaning house. And one of the first things he did was he tore up the treaty that Marius and Cinna had made with the Samnites at the end of the social war. He said the Samnites didn't deserve this peace because they fought until the very end. So I want to fight the Samnites again. The Samnites said, happily, we'll fight you. And they joined Marius Jr.'s army. Well, that was good. That's nice. Kind of yeah. shot yourself in the foot there. It's crazy. The Samnites have been at it since the very beginning of this like podcast. Some of the greatest haters of all time. Yeah, they refused to join the Roman they're system. They're haters. Yeah, they're haters. On the night before battle, Matteo, it was a night in April, 82 BC, Sulla had a dream. And in the dream, who did he see? But his old friend and then nemesis, Marius Sr. And in the dream, Marius Sr. was telling his son, Marius Jr., do not fight Sulla. Sulla woke up. This was a sign. It was time to attack. He asked his legate, and remember we talked about legate last that was part of what made your aunt fall asleep I think when we started talking about Roman military ranks but he told his legate Gaius Cornelius Dolabella to prepare for battle but Dolabella said general the men are exhausted we've been marching all day they need a break before battle Marius Jr. was nearby with his army and he saw that Sulla was dithering he wasn't attacking so he said it's my time he ordered an attack with his army and the Samnites on the unprepared Romans in Mateo. This is known as the Battle of Sacriporto. It happened in April of 82 BC, and the two armies were more or less evenly matched, around 40, 45,000 troops aside. These were big armies. Right. But there was a big difference. Sulla's troops were super battle-hardened. They had just been on campaigning for, I don't know how many years. Exactly right. Well, since the social wars, right? And when they, they weren't arranged for battle, Matteo, but all of a sudden an army was upon them. What did they do? They took their pilum. Remember the pilum? Yeah, pilum, I thought it was. I don't know. 
Yeah, it's their spears that could break off. Yeah, they took their spears, they jammed them into the earth, the wood part into the earth with the pikes standing out, and they made a makeshift impromptu palisade. They took out their swords and said, let's do this thing. <laughs> they attacked. It's the youngins versus the OGs. Yep. And as they're attacking, you can imagine Marius Jr.'s force. Five cohorts right away deserted to Sula, and two cohorts of horse. Five of infantry, two of horse, said, no, 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 we don't want to fight Sula. Again, this is the third army in a row where people desert to Sula, and the rest of Marius Jr.'s army that stayed were completely annihilated, Mateo. This is really the opening battle of the Civil War. Before then, it, they were kind of like little things, marginal things, uh, but this was the first real major, major battle. And on Roman soil. On Roman soil. 28,000 Romans were left dead, Romans and Samnites. Sulla said in his memoirs, he lost how many men? He said in the first time? No, th this oh. time, 23 versus 28,000. It's got to be a little bit of BS. Right? It's probably a little BS. And Marius Jr., however, was not killed. And Marius Jr. was not defeated. He took refuge in a town, uh, not a town, it was a fortress called Praeneste. Some more time passed. There was a little more skirmishing. Sulla hears, Matteo, that the Samnites were marching on Rome. Again, the Samnites are saying, this is it. They see this is their moment. It's been centuries of Roman domination. We're done with it. They're haters. They're so, idiots. So, so <laughs> Like so, all-time greatest haters. <laughs> they really are. You just get the sense that they're a bitter bunch of like... Whiners. Yeah, I don't, it's like they're the kind of guys that are always poking bears. Yeah. Why are you poking the bear? They are poking the Every bear. Every time you get smacked. Don't it's poke like a, the bear. a little kid that doesn't learn. Yeah. Yeah. Don't poke the bear. Because this was, who was it? The Samnites? We first saw the Samnites, I think it was like in, I don't know if it was Cincinnatus's episode, but it's been a long time. I've yeah, watched these guys. I think it was something like episode three, something like that. Actually, I think it was I Corvus. Think, yeah. I think it was I think Corvus. So. I think so. It's been a very long time. So Sulla sees them marching on Rome. He puts his men in a forced march. You know, it probably took him like two or three days. He shows up uh, at, on the perimeter of Rome, and Sulla's troops were exhausted. His commander said, please, general, we can't fight now. We need rest. Sulla gave them rest. How much? A couple hours. And then he ordered them into battle. Against the Samnites were no joke, right? They were hardcore. Right. They were just tribal warriors. Tribal warriors, but they had learned the Roman system because they've been fighting against and alongside Rome now for a long time. Right. Sulla is losing the battle, Matteo. His back is pressed up against the wall. He tried to retreat inside the city, but the soldiers manning the wall closed the porticullis on him. <laughs> Things were looking dire. This might have been the end. But? But. News came, Matteo. News came from Crassus. Crassus was managing the left flank. And he had smashed the Samnites on the left flank. And with that good news, Sulla's troops rallied. They fought through the night and they destroyed the Marian forces. There were two Roman there were two commanders, my The Marian or Samnite. Well, they were Marian forces because they were part of the Marian All right, kind they, of they joined the faction. But yeah, there were you had Roman troops fighting against Sulla and you also had Samnites. Okay. Right, the, Sam, the Roman troops were commanded by a Roman called Gaius Carinus. He was dead by the end of the battle. And the Samnite troops, Matteo, and you're going to love this, was commanded by a guy named Pontius Telesinus. What does that name remind you of? I'm going to throw this out Pontius there. Put you on the Yes! Was that an ancestor? Yes. 
Ah. Did, that, did I give you chills? It just gave me That's chills. That's pretty crazy. Like 90 years down the line. Yeah, yeah. Or something like that. 80-something yep. years. Pontius Telesinus was, in this fact, guy's grandkid, an is ancestor, a great-great-great-grandfather of, of Pontius Pilate. Yes. Wow. That, that dude. And he died that day. On the next day, we're talking November 4th, Sulla summoned the Senate to the Temple of Bellona on the Campus Martius. Bellona was the goddess of war, destruction, conquest, and bloodlust. It's <laughs> a good one, right? Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a big resume. It's like and, when they were choosing yeah. what they wanted, they're like, oh yeah, I want bloodlust yeah. too. And... Yeah, can, wait, can I please have the bloodlust as well? <laughs> so, so, you, so this dude, Sula, who just wiped out the opposition, after wiping out Mithridates, stands on the temple of war, destruction, conquest, and bloodlust, calls the Senate to him, and in front of the Senate, Matteo, he executes 4,000 Samnite prisoners. Yeesh, that's something I don't think Scipio would do. But No, he would not do that. At this point, he was just, you know, he had to get this, this over with. There's so. no more messing around. There's no more messing around. He is tired of it. And I can't say that I certainly don't condone murdering 4,000 prisoners in any way, shape, or form. But I, you sort of understand where he's coming from. Right. The next thing he did, Mateo, the Senate, by the way, was completely shocked. You can imagine these little fatsos yeah, they in their just, togas. They saying, we could keep this, this nice guy yeah. is not going to do anything that's really yeah. going to affect us. Yeah. He's too good. Yeah. This is what happens when you push a nice guy. This is what edge. happens when you poke the bear <laughs> too yeah. much. He then made a super quick march on the fortress of Praeneste where Marius Jr. was holed up and Marius Jr. committed suicide. So that's the end of the armed opposition. And the uh, end of Marius' line? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. It's a very good question. I'm not certain. I don't know uh, how many kids he had. At so. the same time, he sent Pompey to take back Sicily, where Carbo, who we had met before, had fled. Pompey defeated, captured, and killed Carbo. So that's the end. No yeah. more Marian opposition. Sulla then returns to Rome, Matteo, and begins the ugly P word. What? Purge. He begins uh. the purge. Yeah. This is this is this is the dark side, and I'm I'm not I'm really digging Sula. I must say personally, up until this point, but he starts the prescription. The prescription, Mateo, is a policy of executing enemies and seizing their property. And Plutarch says Sula immediately prescribed eighty people without communicating with any magistrate. As this caused a general murmur, he let one day pass, and then he prescribed two hundred and twenty more. And again on the third day, another 220. And then he said to the people, with reference to what he was doing, listen, I've prescribed all I could think of, and as to those who now escape my memory, who I have not yet prescribed, I will take care of them at some future time. So, right. You can kind of get the sense here that Sulla was, I don't want to say kind of losing it, but his, he was probably in like, under, I mean, he's been under a lot of stress. Yeah. I mean, the war has definitely taken a toll on him and yes. his um, level of um, morality, I have to say. I, I do believe there is some I truth to what tired. you say. I think he's tired. And I, so he's doing something that isn't really what he would have done a few years earlier. But okay, can it's I say? the effects of war, the toll that war takes on someone's like, mind. I, I'll tell you, I have a slightly different take on it which is, I think he was doing, it was cold, a cold, rational move, which is, I, I think, I, this is my take on what I think he was, he, was, he was going about. He had tried the other way. He yeah. had tried putting the balancing consoles in position. And it broke him, I think it he broke him. He had tried, and, and he saw this Marian movement as a poison, which was killing 
the 500-year-old Roman Republic. And he was determined to save the Republic no matter what it took. And he was going to lop off the heads of the leaders of this populist thing that got kicked off with Gracchus, which again, which is why I, I had such a hard time with Gracchus. Uh, and the end, the, the end doesn't justify the means, but I think that was his objective. Gracchus? No, Sula. I think he was saying, "Yes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill 500 people." Yeah, I think the thing is like, he broke his moral code. You know how yes. Batman always talks about like, I can't, mm-hmm. I can never break my moral code. I think you know people definitely change when they go to war. And Scipio never broke his moral code. Yeah, which is why Scipio's go. My opinion. Yes, but. You know, war definitely changes a person, and after like twenty years of war and like yep. having everybody around you get killed off, I think he broke his moral code. And, yep. Uh, he, yeah, he was I, tired. He was tired. I, I think you're absolutely right. And Matteo, by the way, during this purge, he was going after everybody related to Marius and Cinna, and amongst them was a young teenager named Gaius Julius Caesar. Sula wanted to take him out. He was the young son-in-law of Cinna, but many that were in Sula's camp pleaded the boy's case. Said he's not, he's a good kid. He had nothing to do with Cinna's excesses and Cinna's reign of terror. And finally Sula relented, but he said the following, Matteo. In this Caesar, there are many Mariuses. Uh, Prophecy. In other words, when I look at this little Caesar dude, I see Marius. But Wait, you want he, me to spare he him? He saw Caesar? Oh, he, he targeted Julius He was targeting Caesar. Julius Caesar oh. because he was the son-in-law of Cinna. His friends said, don't kill the kid. He's not a bad guy. And Sula said, fine, I'm going to let him live. But I'm telling that you, I'm looking at this Caesar dude, and I see Marius when I look at him. And Caesar idolized Marius, his uncle. He did indeed. So, shortly after this, Matteo Sulu was appointed dictator by the Senate. This was the first dictator in a hundred years, but no normal dictator. This was dictator for life. So he had the power to create law to circumvent the Senate at this point and the 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 account uh, the assembly of the, the the plebs. And legal changes came fast and furious. He passed legislation to strengthen the Senate. He increased the Senate's number from 300 to 600. He increased the number of caestors and praetors. He right, settled. So he's just trying to strengthen um, the integrity of the Senate as much as possible. Yes, right he's trying to rebuild the Senate because the Senate under Marius and Cinna had been completely. And even sidelined. like for the last 150 years, had just been like on a downward spiral. It, it absolutely had been, and he saw it, and he's trying to put it on firmer footing. He settled vets, he gave land to vets, he canceled the grain dole. He expanded the primarium, so that line that had been established by Romulus hadn't been touched since. He expanded the line to be able to expand the city. He passed a law to prevent the tribunes of the plebs to propose laws directly, so you could never again have this tyranny of the plebs. And he gave Senate the Senate direct control over the law courts. And finally, Mateo, in the quirkiest move in this period of time, he requested a cognomen from the Senate. And the cognomen was Felix, or Felix, F-E-L-I-X. Which means? It means lucky. Oh, that's kind of, that's not cool. Isn't that weird? Lucky? Yeah. 
I guess he lucky. felt like he had been lucky his entire oh, life. Oh, he requested that. He requested that I the Senate... They just assigned him lucky. No, he, he personally requested that the Senate allow him to use this cognomen, Felix. Wow, that's kind of cool. He could have named himself like Romanicus if he wanted to. Anything, or Ponticus, or whatever yeah. the case may be. Uh, yeah. But he chose Lucky. Oh, which is a like, guy. It's very endearing, isn't it? Yeah. He seems like a guy that like he's easy, he's easy to like, you know, like he's a humble guy. I agree with you. In 80 BC, Matteo, he's re-elected consul for the second time. And at that point, he was satisfied that the Senate had been saved. He had done all that he needed to do. And he was dictator for life. Matteo, at that moment, he resigned his dictatorship. Also very um, African, like Scipio. Yeah. And you know who would make fun of him? Julius Caesar. Yes. Caesar mocked, openly mocked Sulla later in life for having resigned his dictatorship for life. Sulla then disbanded his armies, Matteo, and he wandered unarmed through the forum with no bodyguards. And, allowing, nobody, and nobody touched him. Allowing anybody to come up to him, to speak to him, to share their concerns, and he was just a citizen. That's awesome. That's the best way to go out. It is crazy cool. When his consular term expired, Matteo, and this is going to remind you again of our old friend Scipio, he retired to his country estate in Putioli, Lake Cincinnatus as well. And there, not like Cincinnatus, he didn't farm. He started working on his memoir, which unfortunately doesn't survive, but we have little bits and pieces of it. And according to Plutarch, when he wasn't writing, he was partying with friends. And who were his friends? They weren't senators. They were actresses, harpists, artists, literally harpists. Like, <laughs> who knew harpist was a class of society? But that's what he did. So he was drinking wine, having fun with his friends, writing his memoirs, and he died one year later in the year 78 BC, at the age of 60, and he was given yeah. the grandest funeral in Rome, supposedly ever given, greater even than the funeral of Augustus. Oh, wow. So he was basically, he completed his mission. And he wrote Matteo in his parting gift to us. He was cremated and buried in the Campus Martius, and on his tomb, which no longer exists, he wrote the following epitaph. No friend ever served me, and no enemy ever wronged me whom I have not repaid in full. Wow, kind of a slight to Marius there. Powerful, no? Yeah. And that, Matteo, is Sula. That's pretty awesome. I, I love him. I thought I was going to hate him. <laughs> I, I did think too. I hated him my whole life. <laughs> me too. I always thought he was a bad guy. <laughs> me too. Because of, probably because of Caesar and the Julii. Yeah. The Julii probably like, made him out to be a bad guy. Me too. I went into researching this, hating him and knowing I would hate him. And I have profound respect for the guy after this episode. Yeah, I think he's... If, if we're discounting Skip because I already knew about him, he's. I think he's my favorite character we've covered. I agree with you entirely. I agree with you entirely. And if you listeners go to our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, Mateo and I have started creating images for our characters using ChatGPT, and you will find our image of Sula as we envision him at the end of the Civil War, shortly after he marches back in Rome. Kind of reminds me of like Aragorn. I never really wanted the power. He did not want the power, but he there was nobody else. Rome had no one else. So. 
It's time to rank him, Mateo. Right. How big, Mateo, would you judge Sula's military success? I mean, can you get more successful than how he was? He literally had enemy armies just laying down their swords and joining his sides multiple times. You know? He beat a total... He beat a total of 190... Yeah, yeah, 170,000 Pontic soldiers. Yeah. With an army of 17,000. Nah, I mean... No, I'm one bad. Yes, so, but yes. I mean, can you get more successful than that? Yeah. I don't think so. And the, the Pontic armies had just wiped out all resistance, including many Roman armies. And they made it all the way to Athens. Yeah. And then he smacked the Samnites around. Oh, uh, by the way, the Samnites are now done. Yeah. That's it. The, 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 the Samnites <laughs> now are should've... officially done. Yeah, they're going to stop poking the bear now. This guy, Pontius, that I mentioned is the last independent leader of an independent uh, Samnite state. They're done. Sula, Sula wipes them out. Nice. Yeah. I think you can't get more successful than that. Yeah. I think I think we should reassess. Look, I think we, we maybe we have a short episode one day where we reassess the earlier ratings, but maybe. I think we give him a 10. Okay? It's honestly, it wouldn't be fair to give him a 10 if we gave Marius. It wouldn't be fair to not give him a 10 if we gave Marius You are right, and we did give Marius a 10. And, you know, one thing about the Marius 10, Mateo, is that, okay, Scipio Africanus got a 10. Scipio Africanus faced a Hannibal. Marius did not face a Hannibal. Yeah, but Marius did face... No, I don't want to discredit Marius, because he did face, like, unruly amounts of numbers. Like, 200,000 barbarians. He did, he did, he did, he did. You're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. But I would agree with you that if Marius gets a 10, Sula gets a 10. I think I gave Corvus 10. That was probably a mistake. Um, did we give... We that, gave but that's Cincinnati's? it. Cincinnati's? Oh. That's it. The, the only other 10 across the board... There are two 10 across the board generals. Scipio and Marius. And we're saying Sula belongs there. He's and, up there with them. And that's I agree like, with you. I think that's honestly like the big three of the Republican period. I so agree far. with you. And it's going to be... The only other inclusions, it's probably going to be Julius Caesar. Yes. And those are going to be the big four of the Republic period. Yeah. And well, my question about Caesar going in is, does he, what is the quality of the enemies that Caesar faced? And I guess we'll find out when we get there. Let's not speculate. Yeah, let's not, not speculate. Let's not, not speculate. I think that's... Yeah. Okay. All right. So 10. Political... Mateo, what is what was his political success? I mean, rebuilding the entire government. Yes. Like at first, everyone hated. He had everyone against him, and he still prevailed. Yes. And he rebuilt the entire government. And yes. He successfully rooted out all of his um, enemies. Yes. So, I don't know. Can you get more successful than that? He was given the the grandest funeral in Roman history. Okay, I agree with everything you're saying. Where do we fit in the fact that? He wasn't the first person to purge and to kill political enemies, but he nonetheless did it. He did lead an army into Rome that was breaking the law. He did kill enemies, Roman enemies, well, in the Civil War. Do we factor that into political? I mean, where does it go? Tech, does it go political? I mean, does it go impact? Listen, maybe, maybe it's impact. I'm not sure because that could account to his political. Is all right, to be successful politically, do you have to? Just be able to like maneuver everything with a single to- a silver tongue. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because that could be seen as political success. I mean, he strengthened his position politically. You know, somewhere I want to reflect the fact that he led, he fought in the Roman Civil War, he b- crossed the Pomerium with an army that sets, it continued a precedent that would be followed by Caesar. I think that's an impact. 
Okay, I agree. Impacts. Okay, so you're saying political height. The guy had many political obstacles. He maneuvered his way around yeah. them, and he was see. That's the thing. Celebrated I think the upon his death. Him and Scipio is gonna be. He's gonna have a higher political success. Yeah. And a lower impact because although he rebuilt the government, ninety years later, not even eighty. Yeah. Not even fifty years later, it would all come crashing down. You know what? I I love what you're saying. I agree. So is he a ten year? Is he a nine? I say a ten. He's politically a ten. I'd say so. I tend to agree with you. Damn it. That's very high. Can I give him a nine for any reason? Uh, I'm gonna give him a nine. I, Why? I just I don't know. You okay. just don't want him to. <laughs> you just don't want him to get close okay. to Scipio. I'm gonna give him a ten. Coolness. He's really cool. He's very cool. Is he as cool as Scipio? I don't think so. I'll give him. Yeah, but that final epitaph you wrote. It's hard. crazy cool. No, I want to. I think he's super hype. I'm gonna give him a nine on coolness. I, I think Scipio had. An additional cool factor. Everybody loves Scipio. His enemies and his friends. Well, that's not true. That's Cato not true. hated they him. Yeah. To court. yeah, you're right. It's true. Hannibal wound up liking him. The, yeah, his Hannibal greatest did. nemesis. I'm going to give him a nine. No, I don't want to talk about it. You, you're corrupt. <laughs> <laughs> you're corrupt. <laughs> you, you just, there's no reason why you shouldn't give him a ten, and you're like, yeah. Coolness. No, he is extremely cool. The reality is he's extremely I mean, cool. He's literally like Scipio. I feel like I'm being manipulated by you. Okay, fine. For, I agree. He for life and he laid down the, the race. He did. Okay, fine. Ten. Okay, this is where he's going to score under Scipio. <laughs> he is. Yeah. We're talking now about impact to our listeners. And I think you've already said it. His impact in the very short term was it's immensely grand. high. But in the not too distant future, he not saved, long yeah, after, he saved the republic for fifty years. Yeah, he saved. He gave the republic another fifty years, 50 years of, life. of life. Yeah, that's right. But and, and so his underlings, his own underlings, would bring the fall of it with Gracchus yeah. and Crassus. Yeah. So and he allowed Julius Caesar to live, which would so and he, and he did. He fostered the big three that would ruin the he did his hard work. He did. You perfectly put. I hadn't thought about that as I, I worked on the episode. He planted the seeds, in some ways. Of right. of the end, yeah. uh, and so uh, Mateo, we need to redefine impact as positive impact. Yeah, I, actually, I'm not. What is positive impact though? Because the, if the Rome state is a republic, it wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Switching to an imperial, I mean, we could speculate. We could speculate, which is honestly good. I think as an empire, I allowed it to live for thousands of more years because, I mean. You know what happens with democracy. Listen, Corruption. We're, true. We're not getting into a conversation about was the Imperium a bad thing? Was, right. was the so transition if, from Republic if, to Empire a bad thing? If he impacted the fall of the Republic, does he have a low impact or high impact? Is I think can you have you a have high low impact, impact? I think if you have low impact means if you were removed from history, it's not going to change much. But you cannot say that about Sola. If you remove him from history, it changes a lot. Well, we gave, uh, or does it? If you remove Sula, no. If you remove Sula, quick alternative history. There's no Sula here. The Marian party wins. Right, Marius is dictator for life, and ultimately Julius Caesar, Gracchus, and Crassus never rise up to probably never rise up to be big powers. Yeah, um, Spartacus may never rebel, and maybe, but um, maybe Caesar still happens because Caesar was part of this of the Marian party. He was part of the. Popularis group. Right, but Caesar became a triumvirate with Gracchus and Crassus, and then he marched on Rome. Because Crassus was killed, and so he had to secure his position. And he pulled a Marius and a Sula. Like, I, I'm right. just saying... So, Gracchus, being 
and Sula's party would have never been in Ephesus to begin with, neither with Crassus. But Marius would have been, and and Cinna still would have been, and and okay, arguably so, Caesar would have had less obstacles in his way to right, becoming the next Cinna. Thing is, he rose. Caesar rose to power. Because, all right, Caesar was originally placed in. This is a hard argument. Like that's probably better for Caesar, but I'm. Uh, let me make let me make this brief. Mm-hmm. Caesar would have not become governor in Gaul mm-hmm. if he didn't first work out a deal between Crassus and um, Pompey. I don't know why I kept saying Gracchus. Crassus and Pompey mm-hmm. um, to ensure that both of them became consuls and they became the triumphant, right? The big mm-hmm. three. So if Gra- if Crassus and Pompey were never, if that deal never went down, they never like rose to that kind of stardom. Mm-hmm. Jesus, yeah, maybe he could have been placed by his good uncle in some place around the country, but he would have never. Just being able to shoot up to power like that, I don't think so, anyways. Because he was from just a he was a, like a, a like a distant line, like he was a distant family member from his uncle. Like I don't, I don't, I, I couldn't see it happening. And if let's say if there's no Caesar, no Augustus, I don't know. Maybe they they continue having a dictator system, authoritarian system. And there's no emperors. All right, this is what I'm going to say to you. I understand your point. I'm going to take down his political score, and I'm going to tell you why. Because political is not military. Political is not swords and knives and weapons. And he had to resort to swords and knives and weapons to fix the political system. And I think that that deserves to be downgraded. I don't think he can get a 10. I think 10 is you were able to do it somehow peacefully. Because we're, he mixed war and in, 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 in politics. Okay, so in order to, you could say that the murdering is like an intrigue kind of thing. Y- yeah. Maybe so we should... All right. You know I, what? I'm going to mark him down think, to, to an 8. I think when we get to the end of the Republic, we maybe reassess our rankings and uh, we try to maybe ask the fan base if we should try to switch or include more options. It, it, it's, it's not a bad idea. So and I know gonna, what you're doing. Though. I know you don't want him... I know you don't want him to be better than Scipio. <laughs> All right, but we need to, yeah, we're running okay, long then, and we need to finish okay, this I'll up. Okay, I'll put him at an 8.5 then. In, in politics. But yeah. I think it makes sense. But right. I, and, an impact, I'm putting a 10. Then. It is, okay, put a 10. I put mean, 10. you can't argue. If that you his impact is extremely from history, high. If you, re- if you remove Sola from history, mm. it's completely different. You know, we're talking about, that's what impact is, okay? We can't be like, oh, did, did we like the outcome? It's, I agree. If you remove him from for, history. For, for, for good or bad. Right. If you remove Emilianus from history, someone else is filling that role. Okay? Someone Carthage else is Emilianus. Yeah. Carthage didn't stand a chance. Yeah. Who could have done Andes. what Sulla did against Marius? No, if it were who not Sulla, it, it would no have been one, Marius and Amarian. Right. No one, no one could oppose him. No one could oppose him. So I'm going to give think, him a nine. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. No, be honest. I know what you're doing. Give him a 10, okay? You're, you're not giving him the oh credit he deserves. Okay. Fine, a 10, Mateo. He gets a 96%. 96% means that he is tied with Scipio Africanus for the number one spot. And I had no expectations of anything remotely like this Me happening. Too. I would have never thought. I thought he was going to be like a crash. I, am, I, I am, he was going to be a villain. I am shocked. And by the way, in my personal look, I personally like Scipio more. Yeah. But I am not mad. I know you are. You're kind of like, oh, my Scipio, my God. Like, I, I feel like I should take one more point well, off somewhere. You're such a fanboy. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. Okay. Okay. 
to our and listeners. That's all, by the way, that's all because you didn't give Scipio an 8.5 on freaking politics. Thank you for, for listening to a long episode. That was a long one. And we this now is have a long um, series. It was a two-episode series. We've said it before. We're going to try super hard not to do this again. We will a couple more times, maybe more than a couple, but we're going to keep it to the bare minimum. We hope you agree with us at the end of this that Sula completely deserved this. And if you want to see a new uh, updated version of the Hall of Heroes... Oh, whoops. We haven't gotten there. Mateo, sorry. Oh, crap. Does he belong in the Hall of Heroes? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) A big yes. Yes. Yeah. So, if you want to see... He's the last hero of the Republic. And we'll give him a clap. Oh, sorry. Whoops. That's okay. I mean, I guess the last hero of the Republic, maybe Pompey, because he... Well, actually, no. Technically, it was Crassus that defeated um, Spartacus, right? Whatever. We'll get to that later. All right. Thank you to everyone for following along. You will find a new version of the Hall of Heroes on our website. By the time this goes live, it should be posted. Right. Um, please, as we do every time, we're begging you. We're, we're sending out a humble plea to leave reviews. We need reviews. The more, the better. It helps to spread the word about the Lost Roman Heroes podcast. And we love to see them grow the podcast and grow um the excuse that we tell i mean my mom every day and why we take out an hour and a half of our sunday every day that is very true and that's really well put because the more the more we show her that it's not just us and nobody else listening <laughs> it that's true it's not just us being nerds for roams stuck in the garage uh, we actually have people out there listening and in fact we have people listening mateo in two new countries shout out to nigeria and a shout out to Sweden, Mateo. At least one person in both those countries is uh, sorry. Two people in both those countries is binge listening because we have something like twenty downloads in Nigeria and twenty in Sweden, which is so awesomely, incredibly cool. Thank you so much, guys. Please share the podcast with your friends and family. And I think that's it. Maybe we'll do a convention in Stockholm. Isn't that <laughs> freaking awesome? Yeah, that's a great idea. Who knows if we ever go. All right, well. Well, that's it, everyone. Please email us at info at Lost Roman Heroes if you have some thoughts or suggestions for us. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And join us next week for our next episode on Quintus Sertorius. It's going to be an awesome one. And with that, that is it. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you.